Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I am delighted to say that today's topic uh, has a couple of, of sad points in it, but mostly it's just really fun. Uh, we don't very often have those, so it's always a delight when it turns up that the thing we thought was fun is legitimately fun and not secretly loaded with horrors. I know! <laughs> it's one of the categories of sad episodes. The, we thought this would be fun, but it's not. But it's not. But this one really is quite fun. Uh, so when you think about women in aviation, the first person you probably think about is Amelia Earhart. But today we're going to talk about a, a woman who was into flying a good bit before Earhart made her mark. Uh, and this woman has become the focus of a great deal of pride in Ireland, though she really is not talked about all that much outside her home country. I did not know about her t- until recently. Tracy, did you know about her? I think I'd heard the name for sure, but that was basically it. Yeah, uh, and she's kind of fantastic. We're going to talk about Lillian Bland, who was anything but. Lillian Emily Bland was born September 28, 1878 in Kent, although her family was actually Irish. Her parents were John Humphrey Bland and Emily Charlotte Bland, and she was the last of their three children. She had a sister and a brother. Eva Charlotte Alice Bland was 10 years older than Lillian, and Robert Wyndham Humphrey Bland was six years older. Her father, John, was an artist who had studied at the uh, École des Beaux-Arts in Paris after receiving his undergraduate degree at Trinity College, Dublin. And his work was exhibited at the Royal Academy in London, and some of it actually still hangs in the Ulster Museum in Belfast. Lillian's aunt, Sarah Smythe, which was her father's sister, was a widow, and she eventually became a major part of Lillian's life. When Lillian's mother, Emily, became ill in 1900, the family moved to Carmony in East Antrim to live with Sarah Smythe. But the family did not stay together there. They split up, however, uh, when Emily moved to be near the Mediterranean in the hopes that her health would improve. And Lillian's sister, Eva, moved with their mother, So they were kind of disjointed at this point. And unfortunately, that move did not help. Emily died several years later in 1906. As a young woman, Lillian was pretty unconventional, much to her Aunt Sarah's dismay. She smoked and she wore breeches and she fiddled with engines. She fished and hunted and seemed to excel at basically everything that she did. As a Marx woman, she was an excellent shot, and her horse riding was so good that she was one of the first women in Ireland to apply for a jockey's license. Her skill as a horsewoman was so great, in fact, that she was poised to ride in the Grand National, except that she was refused entry due to that pesky business of being a woman. Uh, you may recall that we mentioned the Grand National recently in our Mr. Teasy Weezy episode. It is the big horse race in Britain. And unfortunately, it was a no-go for Lillian, regardless of her amazing skill as a jockey. In addition to all of the activities that we just mentioned, which were considered very unladylike by not just her aunt, but by most of their neighbors in the county, Lillian was also interested in photography, and as with everything else that she undertook, she was really good at it. So she began her professional life as a journalist and photographer. Her skill with a camera was lauded as excellent. 
It's not surprising, given her interest in horses, fishing, and shooting, that Lillian was drawn to sports photography. And she quickly became a respected photojournalist and contributed a lot of work for London papers. But she also transferred her love of capturing movement on film from sports to nature. In 1908, she spent time on Scotland's West Coast with friends. And during her time there, she made a detailed study in photographing birds that were flying over the coast. Those photographs were made into an exhibit at London's Royal Photographic Society. It's believed that they are the first color plate images of live birds ever captured. So already she's kind of an amazing young woman and we haven't even gotten to the thing that made her famous yet. When Lillian received a postcard from her uncle commemorating French pilot Louis Blériot's flight over the English Channel on July 25th of 1909, she was completely enthralled. She actually wrote to Blériot, uh, begging to be a passenger on his next flight, but he declined. And that's when she decided she was just going to fly on her own and not just fly, but she would build her own plane. This was a time when many people were excited by the idea of aviation. In Great Britain, public meetings and exhibition gatherings were starting to pop up, drawing crowds of imaginative and curious enthusiasts like Lillian Bland. In October of 1909, she went to Blackpool to attend the first British aviation meeting. She was one of more than 200,000 attendees. Yeah, keep in mind, this is not long after the Wright brothers made their first flight and things were really starting to heat up. So there was sort of this this fever for flight going on. And while Lillian was there at this meeting, she looked at all the aircraft on display and she listened to various discussions and she took copious notes. She weighed the benefits and drawbacks of the various designs that she saw in her mind. And she wrote to her father about what she saw. One of the things she said was, quote, The few English machines are, I imagine, no good, much too small and fitted with motorbike engines. After this meeting, she returned home with a greater passion than ever for her project. She was determined to build Ireland's first powered flying machine. For context, in terms of when this happened on the timeline of women in flight, famed pilot Amelia Earhart was only 12 years old when Lillian hatched this plan. And young Miss Bland had written articles about bird flight in addition to her photography of them prior to her interest in airplane construction. So she had some knowledge of the physics of lift and air motion. And armed with her notes and all of the additional reading she could find, she basically was a voracious reader of anything about flight. She made her base of operations in the workshop of her deceased uncle, which was at the back of the family house. Lillian was methodical in her approach. Before jumping straight into full-scale build, she first made a proof-of-concept model. This was a small glider about six feet or two meters across the wingspan. She flew it like a kite and was pleased with the results. And based on that first miniature success, she drew up plans for her full-sized plane. And to construct her plane, she chose bamboo, ash, spruce, and elm as her materials. She documented the entire process as she went. She submitted write-ups of her work to Flight Magazine. We're going to talk about those in a little more detail in just a bit. Uh, one of the cool things she did is she mimicked the wings of seagulls by steaming ash to replicate their curved wingtips so she could kind of get that same... Uh, sense of motion that they had. And the ribs of her aircraft were made of spruce. The skids were ash and the outriggers were bamboo. And the engine bed was made of American elm. Wires attached the engine bed to the wings, which also reinforced the wing structure. 
Unbleached muslin to stretch across the plane was soaked in gelatin and formalin as a waterproofing solution before it was applied. The steering mechanism for the plane was a bicycle handlebar, and when it turned to the left, the left-hand elevator would lift and the right-hand elevator would lower. Pedals controlled the vertical rudder. Yeah, so basically, and if she turned to the right, the opposite would happen, and that's how she she kind of worked her elevators and ailerons. And as she worked on this project, she built it in sections, and each section was then moved to the coach house on the family property for final assembly, because her workshop was not big enough to put the whole plane together. Uh, and with all the components in place, though, finally assembled, it weighed 200 pounds, that's about 90.1 kilograms, and it was 247 inches, or 6.3 meters, across its wingspan. We're going to talk about Lillian's plane and its various tests in detail, but first we're going to pause for a brief word from a sponsor that helps keep us on the air. So back to Lillian and her aircraft that she had been working on. She named it the Mayfly, and this was a play on words, as in it may fly, it may not fly. Apparently, Lillian had heard a lot of opinions from people while she was building this plane about the likelihood that her project would not work. So she kind of named it as a tongue-in-cheek response to the doubters she had to deal with all the time. At last, she was ready to test her completed plane, which did not yet have an engine. It was strictly a glider, and she took it to Carnmoney Hill. And the first trial was a little bit bumpy, not because of the actual flight, but the ease with which the craft could be picked up by the wind. Lillian had three men there to help. Two held the plane with ropes when the wind came, and they lost their grip. Lillian and the other gentlemen were able to get hold of the ropes and prevent a disaster, but wind would continue to be problematic for this light craft. But she did manage to fly, and she made several subsequent flights, and each time she would adjust the elevators and the steering so that the wind would become less of an issue and she wouldn't immediately upset and tip if she had a little gust. She became really, really skilled at takeoff and landing. Basically, she just was constantly perfecting both the machine and her abilities. And once she was comfortable with its performance as a glider... Lillian wanted to test whether or not the Mayfly could handle carrying an engine. The big concern was weight. She had four members of the Royal Irish Constabulary plus her aunt's gardener on hand for an interesting test. She piloted the plane through takeoff with the five men hanging on to the aircraft. The constables dropped off after a brief moment, though the gardener hung on. Lillian's test was successful in her mind. If the Mayfly could carry five adult men, then the weight of the engine should pose no problem. Yeah, some uh, some of the accounts you read suggest that these constables kind of got a little panicky and they really dropped off quite quickly once they had left the ground. <laughs> she wasn't going very high, but they just were like, whoa, 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 hey, let's go. <laughs> Uh, and she actually had to travel to England to pick up the engine for her plane uh, because it had been delayed and she grew tired of waiting for delivery of the order. And this was a 20 horsepower AV row, two stroke. It cost her a hundred pounds. Getting it back to Ireland was a little bit tricky. She had to take it and a new propeller that she bought at the same time by boat train. And while it seemed to startle other passengers to see a young woman traveling with this unusual cargo, uh, Bland was quite pleased that it, quote, fitted very neatly into a railway carriage and an outside car. But even though she had her engine, there was another slight problem. 
the fuel tank for the engine was delayed. Ever the picture of ingenuity, she solved her problem of the lack of a gas tank by making use of items she could fairly easily get her hands on. But this is a pretty short-lived solution. Here is how she described it. I got it, being the engine, on the airplane and tried it late last night. But as I have not got my tank yet, I tried to feed it out of a whiskey bottle. And the only tubing I could find was my aunt's ear trumpet. Sorry, it's <laughs> really funny. It's so charming. Under the circumstances, the engine behaved better than I expected. It was like a cat fight on a very enlarged scale. The natives I hear thought one of the mills had blown up. But as the noise continued, they put it down to a thunderstorm. In the meantime, found the mechanic, while deeply interested in the engine, was liberally pouring the petrol over the main plane instead of down the ear trumpet. And the engine subsided with a sigh. As it was pouring with rain and too dark to see, the proceedings were terminated. And I think I will wait for the tank. And as the engine is English, its sense of humor is not developed sufficiently for these proceedings. (laughs) I love her so much based on this. I like that she describes uh, how well the engine behaved and then compares it to a a cat fight on an enlarged scale. Like, that doesn't sound well behaved at all, but (laughs) but I love it just the same. Uh, And in the midst of this... Uh, she still had an issue of location for flying a powered plane. And a, g- a little bit of good luck intervened here, and she had a solution arrive. And while Lillian was out photographing with some eel fishermen, the men that she was with informed her that there was, in fact, a perfect tract of land nearby. It was flat. It had plenty of acreage. It would be perfect for a takeoff and landing strip. And that land was owned by Lord O'Neill. So Lillian arranged a meeting with him. It turned out Lord O'Neill was already a fan of Lillian's efforts, so his property at the Deer Park at Randallstown was gladly offered for her use. Lillian took her aircraft apart and moved all the components to this new testing field where they were reassembled. There was one drawback to this location, however. There was a resident bull who had a bit of a temper, and for her part, Lillian saw this as a great motivation to not waste any time getting airborne. <laughs> yeah, she said something to the effect of like, well, if it gets angry and charges, I'm just going to have to hurry. <laughs> uh, and with her engine and finally the proper fuel tank in place and this suitable land for testing secured, Lillian went to Deer Park to finally test her machine. Uh, Joe Blaine, who was that same gardener that had been on hand with the constables to help her test the weight of the plane, was on hand then again uh, to turn the propeller and get things started as the engine sat behind the pilot. So she couldn't very well do it herself and then run around the wings and jump in the, the seat in time. The Mayfly's first attempt at powered flight in August 1910 was short and bumpy. The plane kept hopping along the ground. Rainy weather kept additional tests from happening until September. And that was fine because the engine vibrated so much that it was causing damage. So that time was used to reinforce the structure and add a T-bar yoke and make additional adjustments. Yeah, there were the engine, if I'm remembering correctly, was held in place by four bolts because there were wires nearby. Like sometimes the bolts would shake and the wires would clip. And at one point, I think one of her one or maybe two of her propellers got clipped by these flailing wires and got broken and had to be replaced. And so she was just trying to, like, kind of solidify everything down and reinforce it so this shaking and shimmying would not cause, like, catastrophic damage. 
Several more attempts were made once she had all of these adjustments made and once things dried out from all of that rain. And then finally, the Mayfly was able to take off successfully and lift to an altitude of 30 feet, that's about 9 meters, and fly for about a quarter of a mile. The air had been very calm, and at first she didn't realize she had even left the ground. After the flight ended, she checked the wheel tracks and the field grass to make sure she had indeed taken off. She would go on to describe flying as, quote, the finest sport in the world. And we're going to get into Lillian's triumph as an aviator, as well as the surprising twists and turns her life took after that. But first, we're going to have a quick little break so we can thank one of our awesome sponsors who keeps us going. So we mentioned a little while ago that Lillian had been writing about her process and her test flights uh, and sending these writings to Flight Magazine. And she really became a very regular contributor to the periodical, first as uh, in writing her letters, and then she also wrote like fuller articles. And her descriptions of her work, her aircraft, and her flight tests are really fantastic to read. Uh, we will link to some of those in the show notes. But one of the ones that I loved goes, quote, When the engine starts, the draft from the propeller lifts the tail and the tip of the skids off the ground, and the machine balances on two wheels. The third wheel in front only comes into action over rough ground, as it is to prevent the machine from going on her nose. It answers admirably, as my practice ground is rough grass with ridge and furrow, which on hunting grounds I take at a slant. Miss Bland was so delighted with her biplane that she hatched a plan to start an aircraft company. She placed an advertisement in Flight Magazine offering basic models starting at 80 pounds for gliders, 250 pounds for biplanes, and that was without the engine. She offered both standard and racing models. And she also wrote, as part of a more comprehensive article detailing how the Mayfly was built, this lovely checklist of advice for airplane enthusiasts uh, if they think that they want to make to build their own plane. She says, quote, to sum up the various points one has to settle before starting the construction of a machine. Firstly, a place to fly it in. Bad ground is a waste of time and takes much longer to learn on. Secondly, the engine. If low horsepower, the airplane must be light and have large area to weight. Thirdly, the placing of engine and pilot and whether main planes will carry all the weight. Fourthly, to draw out every detail to scale and if trying an original design to make a good sized model and see if any new point in controls or design is going to work as it is intended. Fifthly, design the machine so that it can be easily taken to pieces for transport. By turning the skids around, my machine will wheel along any road when the outriggers are taken off. In conclusion, I should be glad to get orders, either for gliders or full-size machines, and provided I can use my own designs, I will guarantee that the machines will glide or fly, that the work and quality will be of the best, but the engine and propeller must be reasonably efficient, otherwise it is only a waste of time. This obsession with flying was actually somewhat troubling to Bland's family. They worried constantly about her safety, so much so that her father offered to buy her a car if she would just abandon aviation altogether. This also similarly amuses me a little bit, because sure, sure flying dangerous cars at the time, <laughs> not a lot of safety protocols involved in them. Well, and this is the point in most stories, you know, <laughs> we talk about how Lillian soldiered on in her flight career, refusing that car offer and being insulted by it. 
Nope. She was totally keen on this car plan, and she agreed to stop flying in exchange for a new Model T. In reality, it's a little more complex than that, of course. Lillian felt that her plane was really a grasshopper rather than a true airplane. And if she upgraded the engine to anything more powerful, the structure just wouldn't take the strain of it. It's also a really expensive hobby. And she saw limitations in what she could accomplish when companies with a great many more resources were starting to manufacture gliders and planes. And she had, in fact, done what she set out to do. It wasn't quite so flip of her to just... To, uh, turn it all over for a new car. She really was upgrading to a much more powerful machine. And she traveled to Dublin to make this purchase, and then the car had to be driven back to her home by a delivery driver. But she convinced him to let her do the driving, which at this point she did not know how to do. And it turned out she loved it. And more than loving driving, as was the case with virtually every other thing we've talked about, she was really good at it. So much so that she ended up becoming a car dealer herself. She was a master driver, and in April 1911, she became the Belfast sales agent for Ford Motors. I love how her story is almost like a, um, you know, a penny novel. Like, no heroine could have so many successes, one right after the other, but she really did. Uh, and while flying troubled her family because of its danger... Selling cars also troubled them because it, like many of her other hobbies, was decidedly unladylike. So with some effort on their part, uh, they arranged for a marriage proposal. This is how the marriage was reported in Flight Magazine. Every reader of Flight will be interested to learn that Miss Lillian Bland was recently married and is leaving presently for Vancouver Island, where, by way of a change, she anticipates enlarging her education by the control of a motorboat. Her plucky pioneer work with her gliders and her airplane in Ireland, particularly the frank, instructive, and often amusing letters that so enlivened our earlier correspondence pages, one for Miss Bland, many unknown friends. And she will take with her into her new sphere of life many thousands of good wishes from our readers. Also, there is a romance in the matter, which, as we have only just been let into the secret ourselves by a charming letter we feel we have a right to share with others. Flight, it appears, has been the matchmaker. For away in far distant Vancouver, the fortunate gentleman who is now Miss Bland's husband, read of her perseverance and pluck and came to the conclusion that they must surely be indicative of just those qualities so essential to the pioneer pioneer settler in a place like Vancouver. So he came over to see, and at length Miss Bland decided that her airplane engine and other effects relating thereto had better be laid aside. So she had already given up flying, but uh, this then what follows that announcement is sort of a list of things that she has for sale. Um, and I like how they make it sound like the magazine was the matchmaker when her family was very involved, because this was only about a half a year as a car saleswoman, and Lillian married her cousin, Charles Loftus Bland. So it wasn't as though it was a stranger who just found her in this magazine. Although it probably did inform his opinion of what she was like. Uh, and that marriage took place on October 3rd of 1911. Charles, as we mentioned, lived on Canada's Vancouver Island. And Lillian emigrated there to be with him in April of 1912. That's also a little less, I mean, in a way by today's standards, more creepy. But a little less creepy, the idea that some guy was like, I've read your letters and I want you to be my wife. Like... Right. That's a little creepy. Right. He, 
Yeah, the family arranged for him to come over and meet her, and, right. and they got along quite well. So. Right. So the thing that lingers in, in creepiness in today's terms is that nowadays we're not really into marrying our cousins. Anyway, Lillian is enterprising in her new home, as she had been in Ireland, helped Charles set up and run a 160-acre farm. As anticipated by her husband, based on her pluck and perseverance in aviation, she was quite good at running a farm. Two years after Lillian and Charles got married, they had a daughter named Patricia Lillian in 1913, the same year that they finished construction on their homestead house. And then they kind of went along for a while uh, as a family. However, there was a a tragedy that befell them. Uh, Lillian and Charles lost their daughter to tetanus when the girl was only 16. And that loss really took a toll on their marriage, and it broke down over the course of the next six years. And then in 1935, Lillian and Charles separated, and she moved back to the British Isles, this time to Penshurst and Kent to live with Captain Robert Bland, her brother. In 1955, Lillian Bland retired to Cornwall after making a sum of money, quote, gambling, as she put it, in the stock market. Her retirement years were filled with pastimes, including gardening, painting, and a little bit more gambling, which she did enjoy to the very end of her life. Yeah, one of the the laid the last things that she said in an interview, which was quite near to when she died, was that she gambling was like her one happiness. <laughs> uh, and then on May eleventh, nineteen seventy one, Lillian died. She was ninety two at the time. And she is buried near Land's End in Cornwall in Senon. And she's kind of a local hero. Uh, she's certainly a, a heroine of Ireland for sure. But I just, I love what a go-getter she is and how she would just set her mind to doing something and then be spectacular at it. Yeah, people, if she were in a movie or a book, would complain that she was a Mary Sue. They totally would. But I think she just was... A bright woman who was dedicated to the things she was interested in and became skilled at them. Yes. You know, I mean, we we talk about how she took all these incredible notes while she was studying flight before she ever even, like, put a design to paper. And then she was so methodical. I think she just was really smart and dedicated. And you can get good at lots of things if you do that. Um, Well, and and nobody... Not nobody. Very rarely do people apply that disparaging name to male characters who have the same kinds of accomplishments. <laughs> right. Yeah, so that's Lillian Bland, who was definitely not Bland in any way. And seems like she would have been a spectacular person to know. I have a little bit of fun listener mail, and it's kind of late for me to be reading it. Oh, but tell me anyway, because I already know what it is, and I super want to hear it again. <laughs> It's cool. It's from way back in April, uh, and it is a piece of mail that we got in the physical mail, not an email, and it is really cute, and we'll tell you why. She says, Dear Holly and Tracy, I am writing shortly after after listening to your pizza podcast. Uh, if the card didn't give it away, we'll talk about the card in just a moment. It happens to be pizza week here in Portland, and I am three days and seven slices deep. I waited to listen to this history podcast until today, the, this most holy of days. <laughs> Pizza day. <laughs> um, I sat down filled with pie, uh, and high on the day of, on the day's offerings to make you this stamp. So on one side of this stamp, her card, 
she has made a stamp and one side is a pizza slice. Like it's the basic shape of the pizza, pizza slice. And then on the other side, she made a bunch of little shapes that make up the toppings. Uh, and she says, you know, you can use, uh, I can't make this word out, but, uh, basically it can be used like with dabbers or with, uh, stamp pads, etc. She says, let me tell you about pizza week though, as some of these slices are insane. By the end of the week, I will have, God willing, eaten over 17 slices of pizza. Although 31 different pies are offered, I can't eat them all. After doing the math at two bucks a slice, it's cheaper to eat pizza all week and I am going for it. <laughs> Uh, and basically, she, as the week ended, she finished this after the week had ended. She said, P.S., the week is over. I ate 24 slices of pizza. My boyfriend ate 28. And then she tells us about some of the flavors that she ate, which sound amazing. Uh, I won't read all the ingredients, though. But this is the cutest little card. I love it so much. We'll, of course, take a picture and put it on our, our social so people can see it. It's just I, you know, I love creative everything. So, and creative plus pizza? That's like magic. She deserves some sort of award for that. The award is our love. <laughs> uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so. Thank you again so much, Leah. I just, I love it, love it, love it. We are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also connect with us at Facebook.com slash History, on Twitter at History, at Pinterest.com slash History, at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and on Instagram at, could you guess it, MissedInHistory. Uh, if you would like to visit our parent site and do a little bit of research about what we talked about today, you can go to HowStuffWorks.com, type in the word aviation into the search bar, and one of the articles you will get is 10 aviation innovations we'd be stuck on the ground without. Uh, if you would like to visit us, you can do that at MissedInHistory.com, where we have an archive of every episode of the show that has ever existed, going all the way back to when it was very short and had many other hosts. And you can also find show notes for every episode that Tracy and I have worked on, as well as the occasional other goodie. And that is at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. So come and visit. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 